It's generally around Christmas time, but what I like to do is kind of give y'all a little taste of what we do in the senior high, and oftentimes that's not related to the Advent season at all. Um, so we sing beautiful hymns, and it's great, and I'm excited, and then I think I'm not preaching on that. <laughs> um, but it does kind of all work together and all mix together anyways because it is the gospel, right? Um, but we've been studying, like I mentioned last week when I prayed, we've been studying the book of Esther throughout uh, the senior high this year, and it's been a really great book, and I'm really excited uh, to bring to you uh, what we've kind of been working through. And the big major theme of Esther, of course, is the providence of the Lord. You can see in my, in my um, outline there I gave you, it's the providence of the Lord. And David's right, this wind blows your Bible all over the place while you're up here. Huh. Um, but I'm going to jump in and tell you a story. Uh, in, in 1799, the citizens of Frederick, Austria, they didn't know what to do. They had a problem. Napoleon's army had, had a, a surrounded them. It was a massive army. They were preparing to attack. They had the high ground, and uh, the soldiers had been spotted. And the citizens of the town got together, concerned, worried, just so happened that it was on Easter Sunday, just so happened. And so they got together in the biggest building, which just so happened to be the church there, to, to try to decide what they should do. Should they raise the white flag and surrender? Should they uh, try to fight? What should they do? And the pastor rose up and he said to them, friends, we've been counting on our own strength. And apparently that has failed. As this is the day of the Lord's resurrection, let us ring the bells and have our services as usual. And let's leave this matter in his hands. He said, we only know of our weakness and not the power of God to defend us. And so they went about their service and rang the bells loudly and worshiped God. The enemy up on the hills heard the ringing of the bells and they concluded that the Austrian army had arrived in the night to defend the town. And so... By the time the service had broken up, the army had broken camp and left. Today we're going to look at the book of Esther and see, see how to operate with the, within this realm of the providence of the Lord where we're in a place of weakness and not necessarily, don't know necessarily how to react or how to respond. We're, we're going to look at Esther and how she was in this place of weakness and Mordecai in this place of weakness and both in perilous situations and maybe they don't or can't even see the providence of the Lord at work, but how do they respond to that providence? How do they respond to the just-so-happens, the situations where they are supposed to operate from this position of weakness, and how does that inform and shape how we operate and engage in our world today? This morning, we're going to look at an award ceremony, though, as I'll talk about this award ceremony, it's not a great one. It's not exactly a thrilling thing you want to win. Um, and this, in this award ceremony, again, we're, look, we're going to look at how three different people responded and three different people looked at this situation and, and kind of how that worked together in God's redemptive plans for his people. So my first one is, uh, and I always butcher this guy's name, so you, please forgive me. It's Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is pride. His Greek name is Xerxes. So that's a lot easier to pronounce, so I'll probably refer to him as Xerxes. Xerxes' pride, Esther's compliance, and Mordecai's concern. 
But before we jumped into chapter 2, so if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 2 of Esther. Um, it's right after Nehemiah. It's kind of one of those in-between books. Um, I need, you kind of got to get the context, right? You kind of, context is king, right, students? You got to get the context. You got to kind of know what's going on in order to understand. So in chapter 1, the king's having a party. He's throwing these banquets. He's, he's, he's uh, frankly, he's not a great guy, as, as you'll see. He's uh, intoxicated pretty much the whole time for seven days straight or so. And he's, he's surrounded by his yes men. He's surrounded by people whose power resides in the fact that he's in power. And so they're all about pleasing him. There's yes men, right? And he, he wants to bring out his wife. He wants to bring out and show off his wife to his buddies. And Vashti is not having it. She says, no. And that rocked this guy's world, that a queen would say no to him. Uh, and so his buddies were pumping him up, and they said, you need to make an irrevocable decree to banish her and take her queen title away from her. And irrevocably make it so that nobody can change it, not even you. And so he does, because he can't make decisions, as we'll see. He can't make decisions by himself. He listens to his drinking buddies, bans the queen, and that's kind of how the chapter one ends. And then chapter two, pick up with me in chapter two as we look at Ahasuerus' pride here. Um, read with me verses one through four in chapter two. After these things, when the, king, when the anger of the king Asuras, Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him, his buddies, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And the king appointed officers in all the providences of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Zeus of the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. And let cosmetics be given to them. So Ahasuerus, Xerxes, he irrevocably got rid of his queen. And then the very next chapter, he misses his queen. That's the story of his life. So, of course, what he does is he goes to his drinking buddies and says, hey, I miss my queen. What do I do about this? And, of course, they're his yes men. They want to make him happy. They want everything uh, that he likes is going to benefit them. So they, everything they say is to benefit themselves, so to speak. Um, and so he says, let's, let's have, they say, let's have a bunch of women brought to you, and you can pick a new queen, and you can pick out what you want from them. Notice again this theme that crops up. The king can't do anything for himself. He can't make decisions for himself. He can't figure out what he wants to do. So he goes to his buddies, and they're not obviously not great guys, but he goes to his buddies and gets their advice and input and immediately does what they want him to do. Herodotus is a Greek author who wrote um, the, the, it's a book called The Histories. A lot of my students loved it. Um, it's like that dick, and it's meandering. It's a wonderful book, but really hard to read. Um, but he was, a, he was a contemporary author. He wrote about this very king in his book, and he, he describes a tale of how Xerxes, this, this man is just one of those, you look at him and you scratch your head because he can't make decisions for himself, but when he does make decisions and they don't go the way he wants, the world collapses in on himself, and he can't handle it. So Herodotus tells a story about how Xerxes commanded, he was bringing his armies to attack the Greeks, and his, he commanded his engineers to build a bridge to cross this huge body of water, and they built this bridge out of boats, 
And he, he, he commands his army to go across. But before they can do that, a storm comes along and destroys the bridge because, you know, storms do that. And this wasn't very well constructed because it was made of boats. And so he got furious, had all those engineers executed because they didn't, the, his plan, his decision didn't go according to what he wanted it to. So he killed all of those guys. And then he commanded his soldiers to go down to the water and whip it for disobeying him. Yeah. That's this guy. He has people go whip water for not obeying his pride. So in this story, back in our story, he has this competition to bring women to him um, to be in his harem. But notice, real quick, notice the qualifications for the queen in verse 3. She had to be young. She had to be unmarried or a virgin. And she had to be beautiful or, uh, one author says, extraordinarily good looking. That's it. Those are the three qualifications for the queen. Didn't take into consideration her, her character or virtues at all. It's just those three things. Uh, side note here, this one's for free. You see what this kingdom values. You see what these men and what the Persian kingdom values, particularly in women, and what they want their women to be. And this is in stark contrast to what Christ values. Stark contrast. You look at, especially with women, if you look at John 4, uh, you see Jesus engaging with the woman at the well. Many of you are probably familiar with the story. He engages her on a number of different levels theologically. Uh, he engages her, her sin. He engages her as a person. He dignifies her in all sorts of different ways. He calls her to repentance. He talks to her. She was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. He talks to her, which was unheard of. He dignifies her on all sorts of different levels as a person, as a human being. And then he gives her a calling to go be a missionary. She was one of the first missionaries in the New Testament. And that's, that's what Jesus elevates the values that he cherishes as stark, stark contrast to the values and the, 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 uh, the characteristics that this king, king appreciates or wants. Uh, but back to this competition. One author points out that to call it this competition is kind of a misnomer. It's a little misleading because all of the contestants wouldn't be going home. He collects all of these women from all across the empire, and they, they, try, they have their one night with the king. They have to please the king, and if they don't please the king, they go back to the harem, and that's where they live. They don't go back home. They don't go back to their towns, their villages, their families. They, they become living dolls for this man's collection. His pride is so great that these, these women are just commodities to him now. They're not people. They're collectibles. And notice the extent of the search, too. It's across the whole empire. The whole empire, which was huge, by the way. It was a massive Persian empire. Um, so he took all these women out of their homes, all of these... Uh, think about what that would do to the empire, right? Imagine, you know, after World War II, all the men went off and there was a huge, huge loss of men and that whole generation was deeply affected. Now imagine that being women. A lot of women were taken out of their homes, out of their communities, daughters, um, potential wives. Like those communities suffered for this one man and his pride. Whole families didn't exist now because this king wanted living dolls just to make, you know, over there to stay pretty for him. His pride is just astounding. And look, it, it keeps going. It keeps going. Look at verse 12. We'll skip ahead a little bit. Look at verse 12, what they had to do. 
Now when the, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulation for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. So they had to spend a year, a year getting ready before they could even see this king. Now this, this idea of being beautified or pretty is much, much different than what we have today. Um, it was more like they were fed a lot of food, particularly a lot of fatty foods. The myrrh and ointments here, um, that wasn't just like they were sprayed on with like perfume. It was more like they filled a, like a pool, a bathtub with it, and they had to sit in this chemical bath and soak it in. Um, so who knows what you know, that, that did to them. Um, but these oils, of course, were very expensive too. They were very, very expensive. All, like the lavishing of, of his wealth, just throwing it all over the place is crazy here. Um, can you imagine your, your, um, your taxpayer daughters going to be paid for this? Like, that's kind of what's going on here. The king's taking the wealth, pouring it into these women so that they can please him. It's all about him. Um, it's all about for this man's pride. Now, pride is one of those sneaky sins, right? Um, when we look at the king and we see his pride, it's really easy to see. I've belabored this point pretty thoroughly. It's really easy to see his pride and how big it is. Um, and we might sit and look at this and think, wow, that guy's really prideful. I would never be like that. I would, I would never be that proud. You see the irony of that, that idea? Um, it's pretty funny. Sin, pride is one of those sins that blinds itself to the sinner. When you're a proud person, you don't know that you're a proud person, right? Um, like Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron. And at times, that is a very difficult process. But the only way to kill our pride is to see it for what it is. Often, with the help of someone else, and to repent from the pride. Pride is telling God, I know more than you do. Pride is telling God, you don't know what's best for me. And that's a very dangerous statement. The repentance of pride is a very humbling process, and we don't ever see it in this king, but it, it, in reality, this, this repentance of pride is just a recognition of who God is. It's a re recognition of reality. God is God. You are not God. God is God. You are not God. Now, back to our story. There's no doubt that some of these women, if you think it through deeply, some of these women viewed this competition is winning the lottery, so to speak, right? They, they had regular meals. They lived comfortable lives, tucked away in a harem. Uh, they only had to go spend one night with the king, and then they were done. And most likely, they'd never see anybody outside the harem ever again. Um, but they had regular food. They lived uh, if a pointless life, a very comfortable life. It was very comfortable for them. Um, and that might seem odd to us, right? As Americans, we value our freedom. We value our independence. Um, but in, in this time in particular, it would have been a little bit of challenging. But if you, if you boil that down, go deeper. Like I tell my students, dig deeper. Um, think of how many people today pour lives into careers that they hate or, or jobs that they despise for the sake of comfort, for the sake of job security. Um, or how many people... Every action they take is to get them to a certain level, to get them to a certain point where they can be comfortable. American society puts a very, very high value on being comfortable and safe. Now, that's not a bad thing, right? I'm not, I'm not preaching against that. That's not a bad thing. Work hard. The Lord says work hard. Um, 
good job, job security is a good thing. But when we make comfort our idol, we tend to never want to ever step outside that comfort. We never want to step outside that circle of comfort to engage in the world around us because being uncomfortable is uncomfortable. And engaging with people can be uncomfortable. Um, I tell my students all the time, you don't, when, you, when you don't know someone or, or if you're inviting someone into your circle of friends, it can be awkward. It can be really awkward. And one of the things I tell the students all the time is embrace the awkward. We're not meant to be called, we're not called to be uh, comfortable in our lives. We're called to serve Christ. We should love others more than ourselves. Um, but it's uncomfortable, right? And the, 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 again, the thing with comfort is it doesn't satisfy. Henry Ford said, how much is enough? He said, just a little more. Tom Brady, um, if you don't know who Tom Brady is, he's probably one of the best football players that's ever been. Um, some people are shaking their head no, but you've got to be real with me here. Like, he's an incredible football player. How many Super Bowl rings does he have? Like, a lot? I don't even know. Um, but he, he was in an interview one time, and if you don't know him, he's won an incredible amount of Super Bowls. Um, he's considered one of the best in his field, a quarterback of the NFL. And he, he has all the fame you could want. He has all the accolades, all the, the money. He's got a great family. He has everything you could ever want in life. In the interview, he said, it was a striking interview, go look it up. He said he got all of these things, and he got to the top, the best in his field, and he got there, and he looked around and said, is this all there is? Is this it? I've made it. I'm at the top. Is this all? The problem with making comfort your idol is that it never fulfills. How much is enough? Just a little more. Is this all there is? It never fulfills. It doesn't make everything better. There's only one person who can do that. All right, so that's the king. That was point one. <laughs> Hang with me. Um, point two here. Let's, let's look at Esther. Esther's compliance. Uh, this is the first time we're actually introduced to the title character. Uh, and she's introduced, by the way, of her uncle. Let's read. Read with me in verse 5 of chapter 2 through verse 8. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jenokai, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away. He was bringing up Hesed, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also was taken into the king's palace, put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. All right. So what do we know about Esther? She's an orphan. She's an exile. She's beautiful in figure and lovely to look at. And she's adopted. She was taken into this palace, right, by edict of the king. We don't know whether she went, uh, went willingly. We don't know whether she went unwillingly. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't seem like she had much choice in the matter. She had to go. Um, but she learned not only how to, to survive in this kingdom, but she learned how to thrive. Look at verse 9. And the young women pleased him, that is Haggai, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of the food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, 
and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So she didn't just survive, but she thrived. She gets in this new situation, seeming meaningless life, where everything was regulated and everything was decided for her, and where, where her, her existence didn't depend upon what she could do, but who she could please. Her promotion didn't depend on her talent, but on who she could make happy. And so she does. There's a really big distinction between the book of Daniel and the book of Esther and how Daniel responded in his situation, how Esther responded. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. The idiom in verse 9 underlines the fact that the whole empire runs on the superficialities which may be seen, not on the substance of the people who are at the core of their being. One author said, um, again, you see the direct opposition to what this kingdom values and what God values. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God looks at David's heart and says, I didn't pick any of the tall, strong, beefy guys. I picked David. Because I don't look at that. I look at the heart. But Esther was just a passive. She wasn't, excuse me, she wasn't just a passive participant in the events that were going on around her. She won the favor of Haggai. She would go on to win the favor of the king. One author said she was willing to let the empire define her reality. So the rest of the chapter, she wins, she wins the affections of everyone. She's the perfectly compliant child of the empire. She is the ultimate anti-Vashti. She's promoted to queen. Look at verse 18 with me. She's promoted, promoted to queen. And then the king gave a fee, great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the providences and gave gifts with royal generosity. Everyone's happy because when the king's happy, everyone's happy. What do we make of this? What do we do with this Esther's compliance, as I've called it? There seem to be concerns here, right? Some eyebrow-raising things at the very minimum. Um, but before we talk about it, let's jump over to Mordecai, and I'll, I'll circle back around. Don't worry, I'll, I'll come back to it. Uh, look at Mordecai's concern, as I called it. Throughout the whole of this chapter, you see Esther or Mordecai's concern for Esther. Over and over again, he takes his role of father very seriously. He, he took her as his own daughter in verse 7, right? He adopted her. In verse 11, he goes, to visit, he goes and visits the courtyard every day to see how she's doing. Look, read with me in verse 19. Sitting at the gate, he discovers this plot. Now, when the virgins were gathered together for the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. His concern, he's there, he's, he's present. In verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther had obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigathan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Um, so he's super concerned about his daughter. He goes and visits her every day, and he just so happens to hear this plot about the king, which is kind of a weird place to talk about killing the king is in the king's courthouse, or courtyard, excuse me, um, but it just so happened that they did, which is another, I don't know if you catch the theme of just so happening here. Um, but one point of note, God's timing is incredibly important. 
It's incredibly important. And oftentimes, God's timing is not our timing. Oftentimes, uh, uh, we don't know what God would have for us. And we want something for ourselves, but we don't get it. So on and so forth. Mordecai undercovers a plot here, saves the king's life, and what happens? Nothing. Verse 3 just jumps on. It keeps going. Normally there would have been some sort of reward, right? Normally, even, even today, there would have been a reward for somebody who saved the president's life. Uh, back then, it would have been unheard of not to reward somebody who undercovered the plot to end the king's life. Now, we know the rest of the story. We've got the rest of the story. So we know what happens. We know that ultimately this is going to be brought back around, that Mordecai is going to be elevated. It's going to be good. Um, we know about this work of providence, that it just so happened that all these things came about. But right now, Mordecai's reward is forgotten. Put yourself in his shoes. How would you feel? Uh, one of the hardest things uh, there is in waiting on the Lord's providence is the answers to our prayers being no, or sometimes even harder, not yet. God answers prayers. Sometimes he doesn't answer them the way you want them to be answered. But obviously we've got the whole story. We can look at this story on Mordecai with expectant hope. We, we know that there's something more yet to come. We, we know that the Lord is going to use this plot to bring about and save his people. Mordecai doesn't. As a matter of fact, this book in particular, Esther, is just a small snapshot of a much bigger picture going on. The Israelites were exiled back, back, uh, back in Second Chronicles or so. Um, they were exiled. Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, 400 years later, people were exiled to all the nations. The Jews were exiled to all the nations. 400 years later, Jesus would come, and Jesus would use that exiled period to send Jews to all the nations that they were already in to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those nations. So there was a bigger picture going on here that Mordecai had no idea what was going on. He's probably waiting. He's frustrated. His daughter's been taken from her. He's super concerned about her. He's exiled in this foreign place. He saves the king's life, and nothing happens. Can you imagine? He saved the king's life who took his daughter from him. There's more to come. And since we serve a faithful and good God, we know that his plans are good even when we would like it to happen at a different time. And that doesn't make everything easy or all better. It's not the magic Bible button that you push and everything's good now, right? Um, but there is hope that this is not the end of the story. There is more to come. There is hope that, like Jonathan said already, sin has been defeated but all things are not yet made new. They're already not yet. Sin has been defeated, but things are still being made new. So Mordecai was this faithful citizen to a king who was a gluttonous, prideful, arrogant guy, while at the same time he was very concerned about his daughter. Now let's circle back around to his daughter. I told you I'd get back to it. I have to say that because my students sometimes I, I don't get back to it with my students, and so they're like, yeah, we don't believe you, Wilkes. Um, Let's circle back around to Esther. Why was Esther living in Susa? Why was she there? Well, like I mentioned earlier, her forebears had sinned and disobeyed the Lord. The destruction of Israel, 
of the destruction of Jerusalem was no fluke. It was God's judgment on a stiff-necked people. But then, in 538 B.C., Cyrus, a different king in Persia, he issued a decree permitting the Jews to return to Jerusalem to build it. That's the story that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah. Mordecai didn't go, or at least Mordecai's family didn't go. The result of the family's history of disobedience, one author said, the result of the family's history of disobedient compromise was that Mordecai, and especially Esther, found themselves in a position that all for its worldly advantages was potentially disastrous spiritually. Esther suppressed her identity as a Jew. She suppressed her identity as a, a member of the kingdom of God to conform and, and fit in the world that she was in. She compromised. And that's a temptation for us as well, right? Um, of course, there was a history of disobedience that resulted and Esther being in a position of compromising her identity as a, as a member of the kingdom of God. But look at what happened. One author said this, Esther is certainly not a model for us in her compromise, yet we should not miss the fact that her history of compromise and sin will not disqualify her for opportunity of later obedience, an obedience that will bring a blessing to her people. I'll end with this. Past failures do not write you out of a significant part of God's script for the future. Did you hear that? Past failures do not write you out of a significant part in being in God's script for the future. The fact of the matter is you're a sinner. You, your parents, your family, me, we're sinners. Sin affects everyone and everything, and it's bad and horrible, and Christ died for you. You got to hear that conjunction. You got to hear that conjunction. Sin is horrible, wicked, and evil, and it affects everything. And Christ came and died. Just because Esther made compromises that were perhaps questionable, even sinful, it doesn't mean that she's done. It doesn't mean that her life is over. It doesn't mean her job, her calling is over. There were, of course, a lot of things and a lot of circumstances that took place that Esther had no control over, right? She couldn't decide for herself to go back to Jerusalem. She couldn't decide whether or not to go into the kingdom or the, the harem. She probably couldn't even decide most of her decisions. But my point still stands, right? Sin impacts everyone, all of creation, and God uses broken tools to bring about good plans. My father says, God strikes straight blows, straight blows with crooked sticks. You can sin, you can repent, and you can recognize the effects and wickedness of sin, and you can still be used in God's divine drama. While the king in this story was tyrannical, forcing his brides to undergo transformation before they could even come to him, our king said, I'm coming to you. Our king said, despite your sin, I'm going to get you. I'm coming to prepare a place for you. Our king said, I'm going to take on a form devoid of beauty. I'm going to take on a form that will be despised and rejected. And instead of a year-long beauty treatment, I'm going to take a 33-year pilgrimage of homelessness so that you can be mine. The message of Christ is that he became sin so that we might put on the clothes of righteousness 
and stand before the true king, spotless, totally, completely, and perfectly loved. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your providence that your story is not over, that you're still at work. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you are working for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. I pray that, that your words would echo true, that we could trust and rely on you completely and utterly. Thank you so much that we have been loved despite our sin. Thank you so much, Father, that you came and that you are active and present. We love you, Father. Amen.